Now, this morning, I'd like to direct your attention to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. And I would like to read from 2 Timothy 3.1 all the way to 4.8. 2 Timothy 3.1 to 4.8. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Not least when times are insecure, segments of the church have sometimes indulged in a feeding frenzy of speculation about the last days, the last times. But one of the striking things about the Bible's treatment of the theme is how often expressions like the last hour, the last days, the last times actually cover the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Sometimes it's very explicit. As in 1 John chapter 2, my dear children, the Apostle John writes, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so also many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Now, not all expressions in the New Testament work that way, but quite a few of them do. And certainly in this context, when the Apostle Paul begins, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, he's talking about Timothy's days, the days between the cross, resurrection, ascension, of the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority is already his. He is reigning already. And the end, when his reign will no longer be contested, when he comes back. Meanwhile, this period, this period of the lost world is is gradually dying out. There's lots of violence. There's lots of sin. But but it's, it's, it's its last legs. These are the last days. Now that Christ is already reigning with redemptive power. And, and, and Paul is certainly talking about the last days in those terms here because as soon as he's talked about what is characteristic of these last days, he goes on to say what Timothy should do in the light of it right now. He does not say, Timothy, now let me give you a little discourse about the last days. I want to talk about things that will happen long after you're gone. This has nothing to do with your current ministry, but on the other hand, it might answer your curiosity, feed your speculation. So let me tell you about the last days. That's, that's not the way the chapter reads. The chapter reads, rather, of the last days that Timothy himself must confront and that you and I must confront. We live in these last days. So then, what is characteristic of the last days so understood? There'll be terrible times, we're told. And then Paul outlines what these terrible times look like, the characteristics of the ungodly that warrant such a label. There are 18 items 19 traits, a sort of catalog of vices. We can't unpack them in detail, but let me run through them quickly. The first four depict selfishness. Lovers of themselves, we're told. Lovers of money, boastful, and proud. That is, they are inward-looking. They don't love God. They don't love one another. They love themselves. They are inward-looking. And what is important to them is how much they acquire. It's their acquisitions. They're they're, they're lovers of money, which is bound up with self again. And so much of their discourse, their conversation is bound up again with boasting, one-upmanship. They're proud. This is way over against the first commandment to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second, to love our neighbors as ourselves. These people love themselves. Then there are two terms suggesting socially destructive behavior, abusive That is, in word and deed. It doesn't have to be physical abuse in the family, though it includes that. But abusive also sometimes in word, which can be in the family, or it can be in broader streams of society, where every every conversation becomes a way of of putting somebody else down, or or mocking them, or, or minimizing them, marginalizing them. Abusive, manipulative language. 
and disobedience to parents. This is, in some ways, the fundamental disobedience. People who live their lives disobedient to parents often develop a kind of anarchic attitude toward all authority. And then they want to be uh, disobedient to employers or to government or to income tax officials or whatever. I mean, they, they just think in terms of nobody has the right to tell me what to do. And so regularly it begins in the home. So two terms suggesting socially destructive behavior. Then there are four un-words. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and unforgiving. In other words, sometimes wickedness is not positive wickedness so much as the absence of the good. Instead of being grateful, these people are ungrateful. Instead of being holy, these people are unholy. Instead of being loving, these people are unloving. Instead of being forgiving, these people are unforgiving. So there are many, many, many sins that are not so much the positive contribution of wickedness as the absence of the good. Do, do, do you see? And then there are two more terms that reflect speech and behavior. Slanderers, that is with their tongue, they're constantly putting people down and saying half-truths and whole lies about them. And without self-control, uncontrolled, they're uncontrolled in speech or behavior or, or a response or emotional display. Whereas earlier, Paul has said in chapter 1, verse 7, the Spirit of God gave us not a spirit of timidity, but, but power and love and self-discipline, self-control. One of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is self-control. Not letting it all hang out because repression is bad, you know, but precisely self-control. Then there are two more unwords in the original. They're not usually seen in our English translations. Brutal, but the word is literally untamed and thus savage. It's a word that could serve equally well for a lion that is savage, untamed and for people who seem savage and untamed. They're, they're brutal people. It's the way they go through life. Not lovers of the good, literally unloving of the good. Where, where there is good, they, they don't gravitate toward honoring it and cherishing it. They gravitate towards other things. So when it comes to their reading or the movies they watch or what they see on TV, they gravitate to sleaze. They might gravitate to porn. They, 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 they gravitate towards things that are, are not good. They, they, they are not lovers of the good. They don't, they don't see good things and cherish them. They tend to view them as not being very sophisticated or being too old-fashioned or not really very contemporary or with it. They're not lovers of the good, do you see? And then there are four items which probably show now that Paul is moving from the characteristics of the age to the false teachers themselves that he confronts in these letters. He calls them, first of all, treacherous. That is, they're traitors. There are some false teachers who, as soon as they start teaching, they're false right from the very beginning. So if you're into these sorts of debates, you know that Richard Dawkins has been promoting atheism for quite a long time. And he's an interesting man. I like to read what he says. But, but he's not likely to snooker me because, because at the end of the day, I know where he's coming from. And I, I, I want to read what he says. I want to understand it. I want to be able to respond intelligently. But, but, but he's not a traitor. He's, he's, he's someone whose position has been public from the very beginning. But supposing you have someone who begins as a faithful Christian teacher. And as a faithful Christian teacher, may even make a name for himself and is trusted in his writings and his speech and so forth, and then in the course of time begins to drift from some of those things, begins to introduce things that are just a bit uncertain, 
And some Christian leader observes them and raises a red flag and says, yeah, well, what about that? I mean, is that really biblical? And others will pounce on them immediately and say, oh, don't be judgmental. I mean, look at all the people he's led to Christ, all the good things he's taught. Have you read his book? And so you shut up and keep quiet and try not to be too judgmental and wait a little longer. And then there's some more teaching out there and a book out there that looks a bit dicey to you. Have I got this wrong? And then there are a few more people that are raising questions. And, and then another wellspring of rebuke comes along. How, how do you dare stand in judgment? Judge not that you be not judged. That's what Jesus says. And look at all the good things that he's taught. He's a teacher in the church. Don't, don't you understand? And it might be quite a long time before he has gone so far over the line that many, many, many people in the church start saying, this one has become a traitor. He's, he's treacherous. He's, he's, he's left the gospel. There have been some people like that uh, that I've confronted in, in my own ministry where I've, I've frankly started to pray, Lord, help them if they're not going to come back to genuine, confessional, biblically faithful orthodoxy, help them to go so far that everybody can see it. Because then they're less dangerous. While they're treacherous, there are a lot of people who don't see it. And typically they're rash as well. That is, they give little thought to the long-term consequences of what they're doing. They're conceited. They're far too impressed with their own opinions. There's an edge to them. They have egos the size of small planets. They are lovers of pleasure, finally, rather than lovers of God. So that's the 18. And then there's one added one with a whole clause to it. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That is... They can belong to religious communities. They can belong to churches. But, but where they fit in is with a certain kind of vocabulary or a certain kind of liturgy or a certain style of worship, a certain kind of music, a certain kind of conference. They, they, they fit in. And, and they have this form that everybody thinks is really quite wonderful. They, they belong in some sense. Their identity is there. But they deny its power. At the end of the day, what they're relying, in, relying on is the pizzazz of their own personality. Their ability to manipulate people, to control people, to tell moving stories. But they're not really trusting the power of the gospel to transform. They deny the gospel's power. And really now they're depending on their programs and personalities. And then Paul says, after writing this entire list, have nothing to do with them. Now if we cite have nothing to do with them, and apply it to anyone who is ever guilty of any of these sins, realistically, we'd have to begin by excommunicating everyone, starting with ourselves. God, help us. Go through the list again, and you'll see that we have fallen into one or more of these many times. Yet the point is still important. Paul is not naive about this. Where there is a pattern of these things, then you are spotting the evil of the last days. And genuinely, gospel-transformed people, that is, Christians. This does not characterize them. God help us, we slip and we fall in these domains and need forgiveness and go back to the cross. But, but, but this is what is characteristic of the last days outside the regenerate, gospel-transformed Christian community. 
Others say, well, you know, Paul really is here just a wee bit over the top. He's, he, he's on a glass half empty day. It's, 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 it's pretty bleak. But, but there are some nice people out there who aren't Christians, aren't there? I mean, aren't there really good organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and things like that to which you might want to give money to help people in poor parts of the world? I mean, they're not all Christians, you know, that are nice. And Paul wouldn't deny any of that. Theologically, we often speak of God's common grace. What we mean by that is the grace that God gives out commonly. That is not only to Christians, but to all kinds of people. He restrains evil. He helps people do all kinds of good things. Not one of us is quite as bad as we could be because of God's common grace. Even Hitler could have kicked the dog one more time or something. You can always be a little more wicked, do you see? That's not the point. The point, rather, is what is characteristic of this last age. It's not even that everybody has to commit every one of these things. It's just that these are the things that characterize people who don't live with the power of the gospel in the light of the age to come. And the church is to discipline itself so that the church, the body of Christians, is different from the world have nothing to do with such people. The church is to be a disciplined community. Do you see? And then in the final paragraph describing these false teachers in these last days, Paul establishes two or three further points. Verses 6 and following. These false teachers prey on the vulnerable, not least with overtones of sexual connections. Verses 6 and 7. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. The language suggests sneaky infiltration into homes. And they gain control over people. They manipulate them. Now, most of us have lived long enough that we've observed or heard of or witnessed ourselves instances where people in the ministry have ended up in sexual affairs. And because of what I do, I've been involved in trying to sort out some of of those miserable cases. They're not very nice to deal with. But, But, you know, one of the things that I've observed is that it's very rare for one of those things to be, dare I say it, merely sexual. By merely, I don't mean it's not important, but there, there are other things going on. Very often, it's an exercise of power. It's, it's, it's a way of saying, I'm, I'm a bit above the rules because I'm important. Or people aren't stroking me as I think they should, and this is a way to get stroked. And on the other side, th- then there are often women who are feeling insecure or want to attach themselves to powerful men or want to be stroked and, 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 and told that they're important themselves. Th- this is how they exercise their influence. The text is not saying, of course, that all women are gullible twits, any more than it's saying that all men are nasty seducers. But it is saying that there can be a confluence of evils. When you get those two things coming together, there is a terrible conflagration. It can do huge damage, just terrible. Each is feeding off the other. The balloon goes up. There's terrible power and control, manipulation on one side. And weak-willed women on the other with their baggage of sins and neuroses. And there, there is no love for the truth. No, no self-discipline. Just, just disaster. Catastrophe. 
Well, people who have that built into them now, we're told, secondly, have depraved minds. They're careless about the truth. Do you see that? These teachers oppose the truth. As far as the faith is concerned, they're rejected. They're not careful about the truth. And thirdly, Paul says of them, sooner or later, their folly becomes evident to everyone. It doesn't happen overnight. It could be hidden for weeks, months, sometimes years, occasionally decades. But sooner or later, the truth comes out. They will not get very far. Because as in the case of these Old Testament men that he names, their folly will eventually be clear to everyone. Well, this is a really cheerful sermon, isn't it? You invite me here and all I do is paint a bleak picture. How do we respond to these things? What is our response? What does Paul say to Timothy now that he has been confronted with the characteristics of this last hour, of these last days? Four things. Number one, hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold the right mentors in high regard. You see, he has said of these godly pe- godless people have nothing to do with them. But now by contrast, he says, verse 10, you however know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Do you see what he's saying? In the flow of the context, he's saying, don't follow those guys, follow me. This is what they're like, don't follow them. You've watched me, follow me. And of course, it's not the only place where he says such things. Several times in the New Testament, you find him saying things like, be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. Or again, you may have had many teachers, but I'm your father in Christ, he writes to the Corinthians. Therefore, imitate me. Do you ever look around a church like this and find young Christians, maybe recent converts? Maybe you don't have much background. And you go up to them and you say, you know, I would like to show you what it looks like to be a Christian. Watch me. And I suppose when we hear that, most of us would think, that's a, it's a bit arrogant. But I'm persuaded that it's a biblical mandate. When I was an undergraduate at McGill University many, many moons ago, studying chemistry and mathematics, I lived in a men's dorm of about 220 men, and I knew of one other Christian in this group of men, and we started a Bible study. And... Um, because I had more of a mouth um, than inevitably I let it. Um, this didn't mean I knew much, it's just that I talked more. <laughs> and, and because we didn't want to be outnumbered, um, therefore we only invited three people, think, figuring that not more than two would come, and two on two, we probably survived that. Unfortunately, all three came, and within um, five weeks we had 16 crowded into my little room, and, and I, it, this, this was getting out of hand. They were asking all kinds of questions. I didn't have a clue how to answer. This was way beyond me. We were going through the Gospel of John, and, and I was way out of my depth. But there was on campus a chap called Dave Ward. Dave came from the wrong side of the tracks. He had a terrible background, pretty vicious life. 
until, as an undergraduate, he had got converted, wonderfully, savingly, transformingly converted. And now he was a graduate student. And he had spent quite a lot of time reading up and studying theology and reading some apologetics. And, and so he became our go-to guy. He, he, he didn't mind helping some of us younger chaps when we, when we had students that, that were asking, who were asking questions that we didn't know how to answer. We'd take them to Dave. So one night, I took two of my guys down to, to see Dave. Now, you must remember, Dave was a rough jewel. He had no pretensions of elegance or sophistication. He was, he was, he was pretty rough. But nevertheless, he was good with giving answers. So we, I took my two guys down to see Dave. And he opened the door and slopped coffee down in front of us. And we barely sat down before he turned to the first one and said, why did you come? Small talk was not a fine point. The first one said something like this. Well, you know, I come from an atheist family myself. I, I don't believe any religion. don't know anything about them. But here I am at university. It seems to me like it's a good time to start finding out. So I've been doing a bit of reading in Buddhism and, uh, and in Hinduism. Uh, I've got to do something about reading the Quran someday and find out more about, uh, about Islam. And now this Bible study started in the men's dorm. I thought maybe I'd, I'd join that and find out a bit about Christianity. So I guess that's why I'm here. Dave looked at him, looked at him, and then he said, sorry, don't have time. The student looked somewhat aghast, and Dave said, no, don't misunderstand me. I mean, I can give you some books to read on the Christianity and world religions. Um, I, 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 can, I can introduce you to some things, give you some answers so you can so, sort of sort yourself out, but you're a dilettante. You're just playing around. You want to know a bit about this and a bit about that. And I don't have time. I'm a graduate student. I just can't talk endlessly every night to midnight just for the good of my health. You're a dilettante. I don't have time. Why did you come? He turned to the second one. And I'm thinking to myself, yes. <laughs> the second one said, I come from a family that I think you guys would call liberal. My mom, my dad, my sister, me. We go to United Church of Canada, which is a very liberal denomination. We don't believe in literal resurrections and stuff like that. I mean, it's spooky. You know. But we're good people, you know? We sing God's praise. and We enjoy being together. We love each other as a family. We do good deeds. We're involved in our community. We care for people. We give generously to the poor. What have you got that we don't have? Dave looked at him, looked at him, looked at him, and then he said, watch me. And the student, whose name was also Dave, just to make the story more confusing, he said, what do you mean? He said, I got an extra bed. Six weeks to the, eight weeks to the end of the semester. Move in with me. Be my guest. I'll pay for your food. You go to whatever classes you have to go to, do, do your thing. But apart from that, you stick to me like glue. You watch everything I do, every hour of the day that you can spare. You be my guest. You watch me. And at the end of eight weeks, you tell me there's no difference. Now, Dave, the student, didn't take him literally. He didn't take him up literally. He didn't move in with him. But he kept going down again and again and again. Before the end of the semester, Dave, the student, had become a Christian and subsequently became a medical missionary.
Paul says, be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. And that's what we must do as well. There are a lot of things in the Christian life that are as much caught as taught. A lot of things. Which means you need to choose your mentors and choose them well. You are younger Christians or less experienced Christians. Look around in the church for those who have gone through suffering and have come out with hearts full of rejoicing and trust. Look around in the church for those who know how to have family devotions and find out how it's done. Look around in the church for those who know how to pray and say to them as Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, teach me to pray. Look around in the church for those who are experienced in bringing up children. Maybe you come from a really rotten home. All of your habits are bad. You don't even know it yet. Look around for a Christian home. Hold on to mentors. Choose them well. What should you be looking for? Do you want to look for the characteristics of this age? Pussy, pushy, shovey, me first, greedy, proud, arrogant, lots of personality and pizzazz, beauty. Some guy's a hunk, she's beautiful. Is that what you're looking for? Uh, 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 uh. Listen, you know all about my teaching. Look for people who've got their Bible sorted out, who are doctrinally mature, who are stable, who can give you answers. You also know about my way of life. That is how I live, what my priorities are, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. You know, you also know about my persecutions and and my sufferings, and you need to imitate that too. Because after all, Paul has written elsewhere, it has been granted you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. How do you handle it when people laugh at you at work? Huh? How do you handle that? You can learn. Paul says, you know about my persecutions. You know about my sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me. And, and, and you know how the Lord rescued me from all of them. What this means is that those of us who are more senior and more experienced ought to be looking out for younger people whom we stamp. And by younger, it's not always an age thing either, but younger in the Lord. And those of us who are less mature ought to be looking around for people who can stamp us. Hold on to the right mentors. Hold the right mentors in high regard. Choose them well. Number two. Hold few illusions about the world. Hold few illusions about the world. Verses 12 and 13. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, verse 13, you must not misunderstand. It does not mean that every age is a little worse than the previous age, that every generation is a little worse than the previous generation. Evildoers and seducers will get worse and worse. No, what it means is that in every age, evil people will get worse and worse. There's a trajectory. Hitler did not start off being Hitler. He didn't start off with a final solution. Even at the beginning of World War II, he didn't have the final solution in his head. He got worse and worse. Did did, did you see So that regularly there is an upward trajectory when the gospel works in people's lives and their lives become more holy, they become more sanctified, they become more aligned to Christ. And and evil people and seducers can regularly become more bitter or more nasty, more more, more evil. Do do, do you see? You have to understand that. You're not supposed to be naive about the world. 
There's some of us go through the world thinking that, that everything is hunky-dory. Well, God knows there's some wonderful things in the world. We're made in the image of God. There's some beautiful things, things to be grateful for, the fruit of common grace. But boy, there's a lot of malice out there and hatred and bitterness. In fact, even within the church, you can't get very far into any family without finding hurt, heartache, disappointment, infidelity, brokenness. The fact of the matter is that this world generates people who become worse and worse and worse. And we're not to be naive in this regard. We're not to be naive. I have a friend, Tim Keller, who likes to say that for the Christian, optimism is naive. But pessimism is atheistic. Optimism is naive because we have what the Bible actually says about sin. How corrosive it is, how deceptive it is, how destroying it is, how evil people get worse and worse and worse. We shouldn't be surprised. We should always be horrified by sin, starting with our own. We should never be surprised by it. We've just come through the bloodiest century in world history. And you know what? I can't think of a single reason why the 21st century may not be just as bloody. And because of this, we become clear-eyed about things. We, we, we refuse to be snookered with the sentimental views that are around us. If we can all just get in a room and talk about things, then everything will be all right. Really? Where you're not allowed to say that anybody's wrong because that's unkind, that would be intolerant. Whereas an older tolerance insisted that people could disagree but provided they insisted that others have the right to speak their minds too, then you could disagree civilly. With a new tolerance, you're not even allowed to, to say that somebody else is wrong, which means you can't talk about the truth. And if you're a Christian, you'll see that and you won't get snookered by it. I have a friend, a pastor in Virginia, who a few years ago decided he wanted to improve his Hebrew a bit. So he went to a, a, a new a newly arrived in town Jewish rabbi of Orthodox extraction and, and he asked if, if he would teach him some more Hebrew to improve his Hebrew and over the next months they became friends you know they talked about a lot of things together and my friend Randy was working on his Hebrew and um, eventually they started teaching courses in the junior college and religion that was in town occasionally would teach a, a college course together and, and, and as they drove back one night from teaching at this junior college, the Jewish rabbi said, you know, of course, that we don't agree on very much about what Tanakh says, the Hebrew Old Testament. Randy said, I know, I know. He said, all my other religious friends, they're always trying to convince me that we're basically all saying the same thing. But I don't think that's true. I think we're saying very different things. And you and I disagree, don't we? Yes, Randy said, we do, and I love you. But you see, there's a clear-eyed person who's refusing to get snookered by the stupidity of the age that pretends we're all saying the same, pretend we're all, that pretend, who pretend that we're all saying the same things when we're not. 
Evil men and seducers become worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. How do we hold our head up with integrity, humility, in the light of this evil generation? Listen, hold few illusions about the world. Don't adopt a Pollyannish interpretation of culture. It's a damned world. Number three, hold on to the Bible. Hold on to the Bible, verses 14 and following. But as for you, that is, over against, belonging to the evildoers and imposters who go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, namely his mother and grandmother, how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, over against all of the bad advice from the world, over against all the bad habits from the vice list at the beginning of our section, you set the word of God, which presupposes how important it is to learn it, to read it, to think about it, so that it shapes who you are, it transforms you. Let me mention just a couple of things. I wish I had time to expound all of these verses in detail. Let me draw your attention to just a few details. All scripture, we're told, verse 16, is God-breathed, inspired in that sense. It's God-breathed. Notice that it's the scripture itself that is God-breathed. It's not just that the writers were God-breathed. It's not just that the writers were inspired, but that the text as it finally comes to us is, in fact, inspired. Now, the modes of inspiration amongst the human writers was highly diverse. With Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to him, and he actually dictated it so that his scribe took it down. That was one mode. In the case of Daniel, he saw these fantastic visions, and he wrote them down, and sometimes he didn't have a clue what they meant. And he asked God, what does this mean? And God said, none of your business. Just write it down. It's for another generation. And with other cases, there's a David who's, 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 who's writing, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I, I shall lack nothing. And it's not because it's been dictated to him, as if God has said, okay, get your quill pen, here's some dictation. The Lord, the Lord is my, is my shepherd, shepherd, I shall, I shall, lack nothing. That's not what's going on. He's speaking out of the depth of his experience. But somehow the Spirit of God has so borne him along that what comes out, what is the text, what is the scripture, is God-breathed. Whatever the mode, it's the text itself that is God-breathed. And it is... Faithful precisely because it is from God. It is not independent of God, whatever the mode for bringing it to be. That's why Jesus can say things like, the scripture cannot be broken. Now within that framework, it's really important to see that in Timothy's case, he had been exposed to scripture from infancy. As for you, you continue in all of this because... You know those from whom you learned it. In his case, his mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, some of us look around in a church like this, and we know some people who came from a really rotten background and then got 
gloriously converted at the age of 23. And their testimony is pretty spectacular. And we say to ourselves, since we've been raised in Christian homes, boy, I wish I had a testimony like that. Mine is boring, you know. But that one's really interesting. But that's not how Paul views these things at all. Not at all. He he thinks that, that Timothy has a fantastic heritage. Fantastic heritage because he's known the scriptures from his infancy. Not only so, he's not only known the scriptures, he's known the quality of life of those who taught them. It is a terrific heritage to be brought up with that kind of background. Never, ever despise it. My earliest memory is sitting in a bathtub when I was being done by my mother. She was efficient. When my father did it, he told Bible stories. My mother influenced me on the Bible and other fronts, but in the bathtub, it was dad's turn. And he would review the story or two that he told the previous bath and then go on with the next one. And I got an awful lot of Bible narrative down, you know, when I was two and three. And some Bible stories are very effective in the bathtub. Think Naaman being dipped seven times in the Jordan River. I still remember it. And Sunday afternoons, we often played Bible games. Um, and and, and we, we just learned so, so, so many pieces of data from Bible games. For us, it wasn't punishment. It was fun. It was games with Dad. Do you, do you, do you, do you see? And, and then we sang. In our, in our family, a bunch of musicians, we all, we all sort of constituted the Baptist combo. And, 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 and we sang. And we were brought up bilingually on the English side. In those days, we, we used Sankey's hymns, 1,200 hymns. And we could sing them all. On the French side, Sur les ailes de la foi, on the wings of faith. Uh, 549 ones on the French side. We, we, we sang them all. Do, 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 do you see? And, and then there was something. It's gone now. It's gone. You can't find it anymore. But CSSM, Canadian Sunday School Mission, they produced endless little ditties, little courses that were full of data that, 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 that people don't learn anymore. These are the names of Jacob's sons, Gad and Asher and Simeon, Reuben, Issachar, Levi, Judah, Dan, and Naphtali, twelve in all but never a twin, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. (laughs) Do you know the names of the twelve tribes? But there's another song for the 12 apostles. I won't, I won't, I won't trouble you with another one. But, but, but then Tannenbaum, you know, that, that tune, to, to that, we, we got the map of Israel sorted out and, and the wilderness wanderings and all that. Now first the line of coast we make, then Merim next, the marshy lake, then comes dear old Galilee, exactly east of Carmel Sea. The Jordan River flows through both into the Dead Sea on the south. Meanwhile, the great sea westward lies outstretching far to sunset skies. That's verse 1. And then when you get the second and third and fourth verses in, then, then you find out where all the towns are and the cities and where Samaria is and Galilee and all, all, all that, you know. I, that, that, that was part of my heritage by the time I was four. It, it wasn't because I was godly or smart. Or, it, it, we all learned it. It was, it, was, it was part of learning things from infancy. And if you got converted at 35, unless you work very, very hard, you will never learn those things. You'll never learn them. 
Now, don't misunderstand. Learning endless little bits of data from the Bible won't save you. There are a lot of people that learned all those things and never got converted, too. Yeah, that's, that's also the case. On the other hand, those things still nevertheless constitute a matrix of biblical data that inform you about all that Scripture says. In Timothy's case, he not only got the data, but the data were well taught. How from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He had the Bible storyline so well put together that when the gospel came to him, did you see, he saw what the Bible is really about. And it is worth learning who the apostles are and where people move. Well, all those place names are not just given for, for, for geographers. These are real people in real history who are moving from place to place. It's part of learning how to anchor your faith in historical revelation. And yet, at the same time, it's more than that. It's beginning to read the whole Bible so it brings you to Jesus and to the gospel and to the cross. And he had all of that from people whose lives were faithful lives. And when you remember... Paul says that this scripture is God-breathed, thus reliable, true, faithful, given by God, thus authoritative. Then you see that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do you combat all the frames of reference that are secular, that are part of this lost world, that, are, that, are, that, that is dying, that, that, that is fading away, and, and, and that, that belong to the characteristics of, of the last days? The word of God. The word of God. Centered on the gospel that makes you wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. That means Bible reading. One-on-one reading with others. It means small groups. It, it means memory work. It, 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 it means learning to have devotions. It means, it means getting help, learning to help others with it, making it enjoyable, building it into your life. Do you, do you see? How else are you going to respond to the characteristics of this lost world? The characteristics of this last day. Hold on to the Bible. And finally, Hold out the Bible to others. So, hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold few illusions about the world. Hold on to the Bible. But now, hold out the Bible to others. Chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction, preach the word. That does not necessarily mean preach behind a lectern on a Sunday morning. But announce the gospel. Announce it. That's what you do. How do you change the culture? Do do, do you change the culture by hiding inside a church building and never talking to anybody about your faith and just just trying to vote the right party and and, 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 and maybe things will get better with time? What do you do? Call in the Marines? Well, the Marines have their function, all right, but but you don't transform the world into into gospel-centered thinking. That, 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 That doesn't work. So so what do you do? Do you start a political party? Well, it's a democracy. We have the right to do things like that, even the responsibility to get involved. But that doesn't turn people into Christians. Never has, never will. 
What do you do? In Revelation 12, when Paul describes the power of the devil himself and of Christians who overcame the devil, he's, when, when John, rather, uh, describes these things, he says, they overcame the devil, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And by a third thing I needn't go into, by the word of their testimony. That does not mean they gave their testimony a lot. What it means is they gave witness, they gave testimony to the gospel. The way the gospel advances in this world is precisely by what we call evangelism, by bearing witness to Jesus, by, by sharing our faith, by, by, by talking it up, by pushing it, by inviting people to Christ. Do, do, do you see? That, that, that's what you do. So if you want to confront the characteristics of these, these last days, what, what you must do is not only hold on to the Bible and learn from it, but hold out the Bible to others. B- because the time comes when people will not accept it. That's, that's what the text says, verse 3, when they, they will not put up with sound doctrine. Indeed, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their rich ears want to hear. So what shall we do? Teach lies instead because it's more popular? No, no, you still hold it out. You keep your head in all situations, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. That is, do gospel work. Keep teaching the Bible. Keep teaching the gospel. That, 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 that's what you keep doing. And you must understand that that is God's whole plan. One generation passes it on to another generation. Paul himself, verses 6 and following, he knows that his time is done. This is the last letter that came from his pen. He's about to be butchered by Nero. I'm already being poured out like an offering. The time of my departure is near. I fought my fight. I've kept the faith. There's a crown of righteousness waiting for me. And you know what, Timothy? It's not just for me. Not only for me, but also for all who have longed for his appearing. You're the new generation picking up the torch and carrying it on yet again. And that's how the gospel responds to these last days. I'm in my 60s. Ryan's nowhere near that. But he's not 20. Add a decade or two and you'll never hear of Don Carson again. Add a few more decades, you'll never hear of Ryan again. There'll be a new generation coming on that has to be taught, some of them from infancy, some converted, to hold on to the Bible, to understand what the text is, to understand what the gospel is, to be transformed by this gospel, and then to hold it out to others, to preach it. And that's what confronts all the characteristics of these last days. And that's the whole plan. So how shall we then live in these last days? Hold the right mentors in high regard. Hold few illusions about the world. Hold on to the Bible. And hold out the Bible to others.